morning be taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Be reading from the New American Standard Version. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Well, happy Mother's Day. I know it's a dreary day outside, but I hope that you can agree with me in saying that it's definitely not that way in here this morning. Today is such a great day, and I want to echo what Ray was saying about happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers here. But before I get into that, I want to mention that when... Uh, I found out Randy was going to be on vacation for a couple weeks, and I was asked if I wanted to preach. I said, sure, yeah, I'll I'll take that first Sunday. I didn't realize at the time that it was going to be Mother's Day. Uh, And if you've ever spoken at anything on a Mother's Day, I'm convinced that the most high-pressure situations ever to speak are when you're trying to honor your mom (laughs) or when you're trying to honor your father. So I just want to say thanks to Randy. Really appreciate that this morning. If I seem nervous, it's because I am incredibly nervous this time. Because how do you how do you think how do you thank your mom? Like how do you say thank you to your mother? How do you say thank you to your spouse, who's the mother of your child? It's impossible to show them the appreciation that you feel and that you know they deserve in just fifteen minutes or an hour's worth of speaking. But to all of our mothers here today, we want to tell you thank you. From the bottom of our hearts, whether you're a mother with new children right now and you've got the bags under your eyes because you literally don't sleep, happy Mother's Day to you. Or if you have teenagers right now and your patience is being pushed to its absolute limit, uh, happy Mother's Day to you. Or if you're here this morning and you're waiting to become a mother, I know often that can be a test of patience and faith, happy Mother's Day to you. Or maybe there's some of us here today who might be celebrating Mother's Day for the first time and we're remembering, we're honoring the memory of our mothers. Mother's Day and Father's Day, they're always times of great joy, but sometimes they're bittersweet, aren't they? As we remember the ones who have gone on before. So whatever the case is today, my hope and prayer for all of us is that we can recognize and honor our mothers who are with us and the mothers who have gone on before. So happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers who are here today. Now, admittedly, our topic for today is a personal choice for me. There's so many directions you can take a lesson when you're thinking about honoring your mother or honoring uh, your own mother or the mother of your children. And I decided on this topic today just because it's a personal one. When I think of my mother, the thing that I think of before anything else is compassion. So I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4. From my mother, I've learned how to be compassionate to my own kids growing up and seeing how she treated us, how she treated my dad, how she treated her family. I've learned, I think, how to be compassionate now to my own kids, how to be compassionate to my own spouse, how to be compassionate to her family as well as mine. But you know, compassion is not something that's just reserved for the godly mothers among us, is it? Certainly, when we think of our mothers, when we think of godly mentors, when we think of these godly women in our lives, compassion, I'm sure, is one of the first things 
that you think of. So maybe this morning you're like me and you had a mother who is very compassionate. You had a godly mother who showed you compassion as you grew up. Or maybe today you did not. I know that some of us grow up without the blessing of maybe a godly mother or father, but we do all have figures in our lives, don't we? We do have motherly and fatherly figures in our lives. So whether or not you were given the example of compassion from your mother here today, and if you were, then let's take our time of study together and figure out how we can be compassionate as our mothers have been. And if not, let's try to figure out how we can show the compassion that we feel we were probably denied. So no matter where we come from today, no matter what our situation is for Mother's Day, I think we can all at least unite around this idea that compassion is bigger than just motherhood, right? Even though it's a key component, I would argue, of biblical motherhood, it is also a profound idea for the Christian life. So for all of us here today who confess Christ, the notion of compassion... The notion of, as we read here in Ephesians 4, tender-heartedness is a profound concept. It's not just another one on a laundry list of things you need to try to do as a Christian. It is a profound attitude that is meant to be shaped and cultivated in the lives of every follower of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, I think illustrates that, if not the most vividly, then certainly in a very vivid way. Way, But let's take just a minute to introduce the passage here in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, you're going to find out that the way the book is built, by the time we arrive to this instruction to be tenderhearted and kind and forgiving, this is not just the laundry list. This is a profound statement based on really Paul's concept of who Christ is and what he's done for us. When you go to the beginning of the book, you find that Paul is going to be for lack of a better term, explaining to us or diving into how exactly it is that we have been called in Christ. And when you get to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, you find what I think is a good verse to use as a marker for to explain the book, but also to divide the book up. When you get to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, he's going to ask us, or command us rather, live in a manner that's worthy, or walk according, walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And you can think about Ephesians in the first four or the first three chapters explaining to you what that call is. He's going to dive into how exactly Christ can save us, how, what it means to be changed by Christ. Well, you can't be changed by him if you don't know what he did. You can't live according to the faith in Christ if you don't really know what that faith is based in. So for the first part of the book, he's going to explain what that faith is in. And then after chapter four and verse one, he's going to start giving us some very practical ways in which we can actually live that way. He doesn't just say, Hey, live in a way that's worthy of this calling to which you have been called. He's going to say, live in a way that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And by the way, here's some very tangible ways in which you can do that. And by the time we get over to chapter four, starting in verse 17, you might notice that Paul is here talking about this brand new life that's based on a conviction in Christ. At this point, Paul is saying, because of what you know about Jesus, because of what you believe, because of your convictions about Jesus as the Son of God, giving his life for you, now that your soul has been touched by the good news of the gospel, here's what your life should look like. Here are some things that he tells us to put away. 
down in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And I would have us all notice this simple fact. All these terms that are mentioned here in verse 31 have to do with feeling something against somebody else, don't they? That list of the six attributes here, they all had to do with feeling a certain way against someone. Certainly not feeling a certain way with someone, but each of these in verse 31 requires some type of object that is viewed in a negative light, doesn't it? If we're going to be bitter, if we're going to be wrathful, if we're going to be angry, if we're going to be clamorous, slandering someone's name, or if we're going to be filled with malice, all of those require some type of object for us to be viewing negatively, don't they? They require us to be thinking and feeling against a certain person or against a certain idea. But you'll notice that Paul says these type of things have no place in the life of someone who's truly convicted about the calling that they have received in Jesus Christ. So instead of treating other people with bitterness and malice, Paul says that we should be treating people with kindness, with tenderheartedness, forgiving other people because Christ has forgiven us first. And the term that we want to focus in on this morning this morning is that word tender-hearted. This is in other places translated as compassionate. The idea here is to be compassionate for or with someone else. And in fact, literally speaking, this word actually means healthy intestines, which is nobody really talks that way anymore, right? We don't really say, man, this guy is really bitter. But that guy, he's got some healthy intestines. He's a really nice guy. We don't really talk that way about people now. But the idea is uh, sort of your inner person, what's inside of you. If that is good, uh, this is kind of the idea, the same idea as the heart. So if you've got uh, the seat of all of your emotions and actions and attitudes, if that is healthy, then you're going to be tenderhearted. You're going to be compassionate, similar to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. In verse 12, where Paul is largely talking about the same thing in the same context, about being changed by Christ and now focusing on the things that are above and not the things that are below and trading out the things of the old self for the things of the new self. And he says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Compassion carries with it the idea of Sympathy. It conveys the idea of not feeling against someone or thinking against someone, but doing our best to try to feel something with them or feel for them. I think of Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 where Paul says, again, in the same context, we're talking about if your mind in the beginning of the chapter, if you have truly been transformed By the renewal of your mind. And you're no longer living according to the ways of the world. But now you're living according to the ways of the spirit. The exact same argument that Paul is making. When you come to Christ. When you're truly convicted. These things go out the door. And they're replaced with these things that are produced naturally. By a heart that is convicted. In the good news of Christ. In Romans 12, 15 he tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. And if you want a short definition for compassion, I would argue that that is going to be hard to find a better one. 
Then Romans 12 and verse 15. Let us rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Regardless of our circumstances, even if our circumstances don't match those of another person. Are our hearts tender enough to feel for that person or to feel even with that person? I want to spend most of our time this morning in this next major point. So we've kind of laid just a little bit of the difference between the bitterness and wrath and then the compassion, the kindness and the forgiveness. But we'll dive and define those a little bit more as we continue on. But my biggest question is, can I honestly expect to do that? Can I really expect all of my bitterness, if before I know Christ, I'm filled constantly just bitter and mad at the world and mad at people all the time. And I'm constantly nitpicking people, trying to find out ways I can be against them instead of for them. If that's who I am before I come to Christ, how can I expect, what can I possibly, what is going to convince me that it's better to be tender-hearted than it is to be hard-hearted? What's going to convince me that it's better to be kind and compassionate than it is to be difficult and to be harsh? What can convince me to show the compassion of a godly mother? Wouldn't it be great if I could swap out all of the bitterness and anger in my heart for compassion? I think Ephesians tells us exactly how we can do that. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's see what Paul has to say. Let's start in verse 15. And some of these are long readings, but the sentences are long, so I hope you'll bear with me. Starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul is praying for them to be filled with the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, and even later he's going to pray for them to be filled with the fullness of God. And look at the way he words it in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those of us who believe. You see, developing this type of compassion is not just a matter of understanding in your head that logically compassion might be better than bitterness. When Paul talks about knowing the riches of God's grace, when he talks about the immeasurable riches that all of us have as the inheritance of literally the same resurrection, the same inheritance that Jesus had from the Father, he said, when we have that, it's not just a matter of between the years. He says, I would have the eyes of your hearts. He prays to God that the eyes of their hearts will be enlightened, that they can come to some kind of greater understanding, something that's just beyond the one plus one equals two here, something that is deeper. Compassion, like so many other Christian attitudes, is a matter of the heart and soul, not just of the will and mind. So if we want to be more compassionate like the godly mothers in our lives, and I would argue that all of us that were blessed and are currently blessed with godly mothers who are compassionate, I don't necessarily think that maybe they are so compassionate because that's just a great idea that they had. No, the godly mothers among us have modeled themselves after these scriptures. 
And maybe the godliest mothers among us have truly been convicted by their faith in Christ. And what has been produced is a heart that now has a deeper understanding. And because of that, they've rejected bitterness and wrath and anger. And they've accepted kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. So it's a matter of the heart. Let's go back to chapter 4 and verse 17. Don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word for it. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There is a heart that leads to bitterness and this is the type of heart that Paul associates with it. It is one that is just flat out ignorant. It is one that is callous. It is one that is hardened itself. It is one that is greedy. It is one that is selfish. And when we become known for bitterness, when we are known for our bitterness, when we are known for our wrath, when we are known for our anger, when we are known for slandering other people, when we are known for instead of trying to be compassionate towards people, We're known for picking out all their problems and trying to figure out what some way we can leverage ourselves against them and look maybe better or smarter or more disciplined or whatever than they are. If we are characterized, if we're known for trying to pick out all the things so we can feel against people, maybe it's time to ask some serious questions about our hearts. Have the eyes of our hearts really been enlightened? Have we really been touched by the grace of God? Because I'll remind you, Paul's going to say, forgive others as Christ through God, has forgiven you. And if you really believe you've been forgiven, if we haven't learned anything else from the parable of the unforgiving servant, don't we learn that since God forgave us, for that very reason, we're meant to be changed. Now, from this angry, unforgiving servant, since we're shown this great grace and mercy, aren't we supposed to be the same way? Paul's going to say at the end of this whole thing, in the first verse of chapter 5, he's going to say, Be imitators of God. Be like God. Well, guess what? God is forgiving. And if we're trying to be like God, shouldn't we be the same way? When we're known for bitterness, when we're known for hardness of heart, when we're known for callousness, maybe it's time to think about the heart of the people mentioned here by Paul. I think we have a couple examples here. I think time will allow just a few. The prodigal brother, right? We all know the the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son comes back home, what's his brother's reaction? The father has compassion, right? The father is viewed as compassionate in the story. But what about the brother? Instead of feeling joy with his brother, instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, what's he doing? He's pouting with those who rejoice. Instead of being compassionate in the situation, instead of trying to feel with his brother and with his father, instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, instead he's nitpicking out the problems here. Well, he's back, yeah, but don't forget what he did. He might be back now, but hey, watch out for this guy. I think of the teachers in Philippians chapter 1, Paul's sitting in prison. And in verse 15, he'll tell you that while Paul's sitting in prison, there are other teachers in town glad that Paul's in prison. So now they can be more popular. Okay, well, that preacher's, he's locked up. So now the rest of us can become more prominent in town. They're not people feeling with Paul or sympathizing with Paul. Instead of weeping with those who weep, they're rejoicing because one of their number 
is weeping. They see their own selfish benefit in someone else's loss. That's not the kind of heart we want to have. We need a heart that leads to compassion. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, Paul is going to lay out for us just exactly that grace that we talked about a moment ago. He's going to say it is by grace you have been saved. Not a result of work so that no man may boast. We have been forgiven. All of us have been shown great love and grace. Let's go to chapter 3. Let's look beginning in verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith, what kind of actions and attitudes do you think are going to be there? If Christ is really dwelling in our hearts through faith, if we are truly believe, if we are truly assured, as Hebrews said, the assurance, the conviction of things hoped for, the things not seen. If we are assured and convicted that Christ dwells within us, what kind of attitudes do you think are going to live in that heart? Look at what Paul says, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. Look in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. But I think the most, the passage that cuts to our heart the most is back in chapter 4. We read a moment ago where Paul will tell us, these are the types of people who are, who are outside of Christ. They have not been changed by Christ. He's going to say they've given themselves up to be callous in verse 19. Look in verse 20. But that's not the way you learned in Christ. I think which cuts to heart, our hearts and makes us ask, well, have I learned that in Christ? Did I learn that from Christ? What exactly have I learned from Christ? This next verse in particular, assuming that you do know him. So he says, surely, surely, those of us who are Christians, we recognize the need for compassion, right? Because bitterness and anger and wrath, that's outside of Christ. And if you've heard of Christ, if you know Christ... And you don't live that way. Have we actually learned the better way that's in Christ? Do we really think it's better to put off the old self with all of its desires? Do we really think it's better to be compassionate than it is to be bitter? Would we really rather be known for compassionate hearts than hard ones? Would we really rather be known for being tender-hearted than for being tough? Sometimes I'm not so sure. We already mentioned chapter 5 and verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave up himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I was talking with Tucker this week in the office about this particular lesson. And he brought up a great point about Jesus' interactions with the crowds in the Gospels. So I did a little bit of reading. You'll notice that in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus has compassion on the crowds in verse 32. So he feeds them. In chapter 14, he has compassion on the crowds, so he heals their sick. In Luke chapter 7, he has compassion on a widow whose son died. And he raises her son 
from the dead. But John chapter 11 is where I would turn your attention to for just a few moments as we near our conclusion. John chapter 11, the word compassion doesn't appear here, but the idea of compassion most certainly does. Lazarus has passed on. Let's get the scene here starting in verse 31. When the Jews who were with Martha in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said to them, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Did he weep because Lazarus was gone? We're talking about the Son of God here. He knows that he has the power over death, doesn't he? He knows that he can bring Lazarus out of the grave. He knows that if not, he he can see Lazarus in the resurrection. He knows. So why is he crying? You'll notice the direct cause of this in the text. When he sees Lazarus' sisters crying. When he sees the friends of Lazarus crying, God himself is deeply moved in his spirit. God himself is compassionate. God himself weeps with those who weep. And I wonder if we do the same. After all, he could have been cold and callous, couldn't he? Who would better know that death is a part of life than the Son of God? But he's compassionate, kind, tender-hearted. If we have a heart that leads to compassion, I wonder what that might look like in our families. I wonder what that might look like in our church, which after all, Paul calls the household of God, the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse verse 14, Paul is going to say that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down between God and humanity in Christ. The dividing wall of hostility has indeed been torn down between God and humanity, but I wonder if the dividing wall between humanity is ever torn down. How many walls are up between us this morning? Verse 22 of Ephesians 2 will tell you that we're all being built up together as a dwelling place for Christ. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, you'll find Paul telling us that we are all being built together. We've all been assigned different gifts from the Father according to His grace. We've all been equipped to serve different roles in the family, in the body of Christ. And he's going to tell us that it is such arranged so that we can all grow together, so that we can build ourselves up in love. You see, if we truly understand the nature of of being a follower of Christ and being a member of His body, then we don't really have any other choice than to feel with people, do we? We don't really have any other choice but to be compassionate because we're all members of the same unit. We're all members of the same body. And if one of us suffers, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, all of us suffer together with it. In conclusion, 
I would present this idea to you that this idea to you that compassion is the difference between life and death. Compassion on God's part was certainly the difference between our life and our death, was it not? If we learn nothing else from Ephesians 2, I think that's what we learn. Without compassion, all of us are dead. But without compassion for each other, I think we have the same fate. I'm reminded of a man named Sundar Singh. He was an explorer, and he went on a trek through the Himalayas with a friend of his. And they had hiked about a day's journey in, and the snowstorms got so bad... Uh, they had to turn around to leave. And in turning around to leave, Sundar's traveling partner said, this is too difficult for us to go together. It's every man for himself. And he takes off, leaving Sundar alone, freezing in the cold. Sundar comes across a man who has stumbled and fallen in the snow. And he opts to help the man out instead of leaving him there to freeze. Has compassion on the man, lifts him up. Shoulder to shoulder, they walk. Together. About four hours later, they come across another body in the snow. It was Sundar's original traveling companion. You see, Sundar was kept alive by the heat and the warmth from the body of the man that he had compassion on, while the man who chose to go off alone into the bitter cold froze to death, turned to ice. Compassion is truly a matter of of life and death. And this morning I would challenge all of us to ask ourselves, am I actually compassionate? Do I feign compassion? Do I smile and nod? And then in my heart of hearts continue to be just as bitter and as angry as I've ever been? Or has my heart truly changed? Have I put behind these things of the old life? And am I starting to replace them with things of the new? Just what have I learned in Christ? And do I actually believe that? If you're here this morning and your heart has been touched, if you're here this morning and you want to decide to be tender-hearted instead of just tough, if you're here this morning and you know you need to be more forgiving, you need to be more kind, and the story of Christ, the grace of Christ has touched your heart this morning, we spent a great deal of time this morning talking about that grace of Christ. And if your heart has been touched by that today, then why would you wait to submit to Him in loving obedience? Or maybe you're here this morning and you know that you need the prayers of the church. You know you need uh, the compassion. You know you need someone to just pick you up out of the snow and to put their arms around with you and walk with you so that you can survive. Whatever you need this morning, we hope you'll come now as we sing together.